0: Our reading today, our sermon today comes from John chapter 13, the first 20 verses. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Before we jump into this well-known passage and explore its depths, let's bow our heads, surrender our hearts, humble ourselves before the king of the universe and ask him to bring it to life in us. Breathe on us, spirit of our living God. You have promised your disciples that you will bring to mind all of your truth. You will help us understand it by your spirit. You've given us your word. Your son has come to reveal the father to us. You've sent your spirit to illuminate these truths and awaken our hearts. And so would you do that amazing work right now, here through this word, among this people, that we would become the hands and feet of Jesus in this place. Do so now by the power given to us in the name of our crucified and risen King Jesus. Amen. Before most of you were here this morning... The glorious love of God was radiating throughout this building and pouring out of the windows into the city. It was an incredible thing to witness. As news of war and calls for war around the world fill our airwaves, the answer to that chaos was already filling this place, awaiting your arrival to receive it. In a world desperate for a secure identity and purpose, God's love was swelling in here, ready to burst out of the floodgates into this community. What was possibly happening here that I could speak of it in such powerful, cosmic, divine terms? Well, some of your brothers and sisters were here early, serving you, preparing this place for you to gather for worship. When you think of our great responsibility of representing Jesus to this world. What do you think is the clearest way that we can put that love on display? Perhaps in your mind, your, ju- your mind goes to, jumps quickly to something big. Like voting for, becoming a great politician who can enact and enforce just laws. Maybe you think you need to become rich and famous and influential so you can have enough resources and a platform to help as many, as, people, as many people as possible. Maybe you think you need to become a brilliant theologian or a skilled apologist. Go find yourself a pulpit or an online platform so you can convince so many people of the love of God with your own eloquent words. Or I know some of you have thought you need to become a missionary and go to the other side of the world to save some unreached people group. Those grand activities might be the calling on some of your lives, but it's not what every disciple of Jesus is called to. Some, some people in those roles can accomplish a lot of gospel good, but even in those roles, there's something more basic a simpler, clearer, more powerful way. That everyone is called to display the love of God. Instead of thinking big, Jesus here is calling us to think small. Much, much smaller. Think more along the lines of your dinner table with your neighbors. Or your living room with your children. Or your bedroom with your spouse. Or this building with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Consider those who arrive early to prepare it, to welcome you for worship. Ponder the times when somebody in this room gave up time and money to spend it with you and help you through a difficult season or pull you away from spiritual danger. It's in these ordinary moments of life that we all have the greatest opportunity to lead others deeper into the love of God. This is what Jesus is calling his disciples to here in John 13 in this famous foot-washing scene. If you want to lead people powerfully out of this world to the presence of God, then you ought to serve one another with a sacrificial love. Serve one another with sacrificial love. As commonly known as this foot-washing story is, it could be really, it really is often misinterpreted and misapplied. So we're going to jump in deep to it today and see how it calls us to loving gospel service. We're breaking it into two parts. First in verses 1 through 11, we look at Jesus' cleansing love. He loves his disciples primarily by washing away their sin. And after he makes this love clear in verses 12 to 20, Jesus calls us to an imitating faith. In his footwashing service, he's giving them an example to follow so that in the same way that Jesus reveals the Father, you reveal Jesus to reveal the Father. So let's jump into these details so we can both be washed by our servant Lord Jesus, and then obediently follow in his footsteps as servant-hearted students of our great teacher. So I'm gonna read again these powerful words of God in verses one through 11. We see Jesus cleansing love. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Now, the first thing you notice in this story from John, he's once again drawing our attention to the Passover. He's done this regularly throughout this book, especially in the last couple of chapters. He wants us to see that Jesus fulfills everything the Passover is all about. Like John the Baptist cried out in chapter one, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Passover lamb. But in this scene, he's doing more than just showing us that Jesus is the lamb. He wants us to understand what the lamb, the lamb's sacrifice is going to accomplish. John explains in this little prologue in verse one, that this foot washing happened before the feast, before the meal actually began. It was a setup for the Passover meal. Here's something I want you to be thinking about as we eat this food. They had. Jesus had just before this proclaimed publicly that to believe in Jesus is to believe the father, to see Jesus is to see the father so that he's calling you to believe, trust what he is about to do as the path to lead you into God's glory. So now he's going to begin the work of bringing them into God's glory. Jesus himself is going to return to the father but he's not abandoning his disciples. He's not just going away. He's loved them in his presence this whole time, teaching them, walking with them, doing what it takes. Now, he is going to lead them all the way to glory. He's going to keep loving them. Before we get to, he gets to work in verse two, John drops in just another little note that Judas is already working to betray Jesus. John's not just getting another little jab in at that bad guy, keeps inserting himself into this story. He's actually looking back as he's writing this book, looking back with hindsight, realizing that when he says Jesus was loving us this whole time, Jesus already knew what Satan was scheming in Judas's heart. And he was still working to love us. Jesus was well aware that Judas' work was going to lead him to the cross. But even that would not be enough to keep him from loving his disciples. In fact, it was the very thing that was going to show his love in the most powerful way. Verse 3 reinforces that idea. Everything has been handed into Jesus' hands. It's all in his control. Jesus had come to the Father, come from the Father, been sent by the Father to accomplish this very thing. Even Satan scheming with Judas to lead him to the cross. And this very thing would lead him back to the Father's side, but this time with all those whom he came to save, bringing them along with him. He was in control the entire time. So now, in complete confidence of his plan and purpose, Jesus is in control, his certainty of his authority, his heavenly identity, Jesus is a strong man who knows who he is. In verse 4, he does something rather surprising. Jesus stood up from the table, took off his robes, his outer garments, and wrapped a towel around his waist. That might seem a little confusing to us, really shocking to them. They knew that in dressing up in this way, Jesus was taking upon himself the identity of a slave. He's standing there with just a towel around his undergarments. Just looks like any other slave you'd walk by. In that time, he's a poor slave who doesn't even have any of his own clothes. There's nothing about him that would mark out his his status in society. He looks like everybody else I've walked by a hundred times and forgotten already. Even more shocking in verse 6, John tells us that Jesus got down on his knees with a basin of water and began scrubbing their feet. Their nasty, nasty feet. Think about what was going on here. This is so disgusting that even even Jewish servants were not asked to do it. They would only make the Gentile slaves wash their feet. There's, There's no indoor plumbing at this time. There's no trash pickup. There's one road to get everywhere you need to go. There's not a separate road for farms. So if you were walking down the road, you were walking where everyone dumped their Toilet buckets where everyone dumped their trash, where the animals all day long are walking up and down doing their business. Certainly, you would put sandals on so as you're walking down the road, you don't just like squish your toes into it all. But it's already all there and it dries out and it just kind of hovers above the dirt a foot off the ground. You walk through it and it covers the bottoms of your legs. So if you're going to go into someone's house, you want to respect them and keep the place clean, you might take off your sandals, right? Just like we take off our shoes here, but it's still all over the place. So they would leave a basin of water that you could wash it off as best you can. It's polite, but you'd do that yourself. No one would volunteer to do that for somebody else. Put your own face down right into someone else's filthy feet. Who would do that for others? Jesus did. Why did he do that? The next couple of verses explain. At first, Peter refused. He thought, oh, that is so disgusting, too disgusting for my Messiah. So his question, do you wash my feet? is suggesting that if, there's, if anyone's going to be washing other people's feet, I should be doing it for you. Jesus explains in verse eight that Peter doesn't really understand what's going on here. Soon you will. After I go to the cross, then you'll understand. But Peter insists in verse nine, he can't stand the thought of something so disgusting being in the presence of his Lord. Which is exactly the point. Jesus responds, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. You'll have no part of me. He's saying, yeah, you're right, Peter. Nothing so disgusting can come into the presence of God. Isaiah had that vision of the glory of God and said, woe is me. I am in done. I'm a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. I ought to die right now. Isaiah got it. Peter didn't understand right away. Jesus says, yeah, nothing so disgusting can be near me, which is why I need to wash you. Your sin has made you disgusting. If you try to wash anything, you will just spread the filth. It's like taking a bath in mud, trying to wash your kitchen floor with dirty water. It's not going to work. Only Jesus has pure water to wash it away. And if I don't wash it, You won't be near me. So Jesus himself had to become low to reach the low. He became the lowest to save the lowest. He's the only one who can wash you without getting dirty himself, without spreading the mess around. Now Peter's starting to understand. He doesn't fully understand how Jesus is going to accomplish it, but he knows I need to be washed. So he begs Jesus in verse 10. Not only my feet, wash my hands and my head as well. Head and hands, these are symbolic of the whole life. Remember Deuteronomy 6, Moses commands the people, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. You should put that love on display everywhere you go and everything you do and to remind yourself you should write it down and and put it on your hands and on your forehead, to which the Jews literally wrote it down, put it in a box, wrap it around their hand, and put it around their head. That's not what he meant. He meant that God's word should inform and inspire everything you put your hands to, everything that passes through your eyes and bounces around inside of your head every work you do, everything you ponder, every deed, every thought shaped by God's word. And now Peter knows that is not me. I am not clean. I need Jesus to wash me entirely. The point of Jesus washing their feet is to show them what he's about to accomplish as the Passover lamb, Our souls are filthy from the sin and stains and dirt of this world, like we've been walking down dirty country farm roads our entire life. We can't come into the Father's house as Isaiah was invited, seeing his glory. We will contaminate it. We can't wash our own feet off. We are filthy. So God sent his only son to be the servant to wash us so we can enter. He's the only one in the household who's able to make us clean. This is what he came to accomplish on the cross. He had loved his disciples up to this point, teaching them and modeling for them what faithful living in God's household looks like. But they still weren't allowed in because they were not clean. But Jesus declares in verse 10 that through his coming sacrifice, they are already clean. Even before he did it, he had declared that that future sacrifice already had made them clean. But he says this confusing thing that their feet still need to be washed. What is that about? Well, here he's, he's clarifying something that won't really make sense until after Jesus dies and rises His sacrifice is going to clean them, but they're not going to be perfect right away. They're clean enough that when they die, they will be ushered right into the presence of God. But this foot washing is a great example of the ongoing cleansing that needs to happen throughout our lives. This ongoing repentance and faith. Jesus is going to leave them in this dirty world for a while to accomplish more of his work. Through this world, we're still going to get dirty. We're still going to sin. But Jesus will wash us from that also. John will clarify this same idea later in his first letter. In 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You can't say, I believe in Jesus. I don't sin anymore. That doesn't happen. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We still need to be in this practice of confessing and going to Jesus to be washed. Paul made the same point in Romans 7 and 8. I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I should be doing, and who will deliver me from this body of death? The Lord Jesus Christ. Christians hate sin. But we acknowledge that when we stumble into it, the only way out of it is to return to Jesus to be cleaned. It's not a full washing, that was already accomplished on the cross. But it's ongoing reformation until the day that John speaks of a couple chapters later in 1 John 3 when he says, Beloved, we are children of God now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. We're not, we're still immature. We're still got some dirt on us, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. One day Jesus will return and finally fully clean us. So we will be spotless, never to let dirt settle on our bodies again. This is kind of a confusing and difficult line to understand, right? What's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian who sin? Well, Judas and Peter themselves in this story give us the contrast here forward. Jesus explains in verse 10 that not everyone present was clean. And in verse 11, John explains that's Judas. We're talking about Judas. Judas was not clean, but Peter was. Judas misunderstood who Jesus was, and he followed that misunderstanding into betrayal of the Lord of glory. Peter misunderstood who Jesus was, but he kept leaning in to gain more wisdom by faith. Judas, later on, would feel bad for betraying Jesus, and he would deal with his guilt by killing himself, running away from Jesus. Peter also will betray Jesus, similar sins. But Peter will run back to Christ to rid himself of his guilt. Jesus said of Judas that it would have been better for him never to have been born, meaning he's going to be punished forever for his sins. But Peter, Jesus said to Peter that he had been restored in order to feed his sheep given responsibility. One of them hated being caught. The other hated his sin. One ran away from Jesus. One ran back to Jesus to be washed again. One was an instrument of judgment. The other an instrument of restoration. Those who cling to Jesus' sacrifice by faith are declared clean already. That's what theologians call justification. God sees you now in Christ As clean. He declares it to be true, even if it's not experientially true. That's what we call sanctification, the process of experientially becoming clean. Justification is being clean covered in Christ, sanctification is being made clean by Christ in you. And then through that ongoing cleansing, we are made into instruments of his further cleansing work towards others. That's what we see them called to, us called to, in verses 12 to 20. We see Jesus calling us to imitating faith, serving one another with sacrificial love. Let's read those again. Verse 12. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So after Jesus models this service, what it is going, or after he shows them what it's going to accomplish, now he puts his garments back on, takes a seat at the table with them, to give them further instruction. Kind of a reminder, hey, I just put on this identity of a slave, but I am still your Lord. I am still your teacher. He's still the boss around here. In this section, he calls them now to imitate his service by serving one another. And he gives them two reasons why they should do it. The first one is basically, I'm the boss, and I told you to. I gave you the example, now go do it. And the other one, the second one is, If you apply what I have just taught you, you will be greatly blessed. Verses 12 through 16 address that first reason. He starts with this rhetorical question, asking if they understand. And then he's going to give the answer of what it means. If you understand what this sacrificial cleansing has done, you will know that this cleansing is done in order to make you into a multiplier of his cleansing. You can't just call Jesus a teacher who filled your mind with a bunch of interesting information without applying it to your life. You can't say he's the king of the universe and not surrender to his authority. If you call him teacher and Lord, you will apply what he has taught. You will do what he has commanded. Here is his command. You also ought to wash one another's feet. Some churches have taken that quite literally. They implemented foot washing before their communion. Take your shoes off, wash each other's feet, now come up and put food in your mouth. Sounds a little humbling. But I don't think that's what he's getting at. Just like the binding God's word on your hands and your head wasn't meant to be turned into a ritual, this isn't meant to be a ritual either. He intends for his people to become self-sacrificial servants that lead others into God's love. This wouldn't even make sense in our society. We have clean streets, we have plumbing, we have landfills, we have pastures for animals. There's a thousand other ways you can put this service on display. We'll explore that in a bit. Right now, Jesus gives them a simple command and he puts an exclamation point at the end of it. In verse 16, saying, truly, truly, I say to you, that repetition is an emphasis. Get what I'm saying. A servant is not greater than his master. If Jesus got low to serve others, you will get lower. You can't stand above your master. You must become a servant too, because your master did it and he tells you to do it. In verse 17, verse 17, gives us even more motivation, more than because I told you so. You can't just tell your kids because I told you so. you got to actually inspire them with some good reasons to move forward. He says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. If you understand what he's teaching you, what he's calling you to, you'll not only do it because he says so, but because you'll be blessed if you'll do it. There is good for you in doing it. Doesn't seem likely. I'm to become despised, ugly, gross, a servant, unknown. Yes, lots of blessing for you in that. Verse 18 throws in a little bit of a disclaimer, saying that this blessing is reserved for those who have been washed by Jesus as his eyes glance over at Judas, who is not clean. But again, the emphasis is that this is all unfolding according to his plan. Just as David had foreshadowed in Psalm 49, which is quoted here, David was betrayed by the people closest to him, his own family. Jesus was too, in a more profound way. But through all of it, God will accomplish his will. He's been in charge of all of history. He'll accomplish his work even through betrayers like Judas. And he'll accomplish his mission through ordinary, faithful people like you who become servants. It all starts with the cross. Sanctification and mission come out of justification. You can't become a servant for Jesus until you've been washed by Jesus. You can't receive his blessings by just going through the Christian motion. But when you do become a washed sinner and serve others, there's great blessing. And the biggest part of that blessing is realizing that God is in control through all of your trials. Jesus says in verse 19, he's teaching them these things ahead of this big thing that's about to happen that is going to shake them, his death and resurrection. So that when they do go through it and they see it all happening just as he had promised, And then at the end of it all, they see their resurrected Savior standing above all of the dust as it settles. That is quite faith building. It'll just be further confirmation that Jesus is, I am the holy God of the universe at work right here among us. The more you realize this, the more it builds you up and the more it calls you to serve and give yourself more so that he puts on his power more on display and that builds you up even more. What a blessing that is. Those who have been through hard things, still clinging to Jesus and seeing him more powerful than ever through it, they know intimately what a blessing that struggle was because it's shown them even more clearly the love of God. So Jesus puts another exclamation point on this promise in verse 20 with another truly, truly, I say to you, if you've been washed by Jesus to become a servant imitating him, you become his representative, just like he's a representative of God, the father. Remember at the end of chapter 12, Jesus explained, if you see the father, if you see me, you see the Father." Now he's extending that authority out to you saying, if the world sees you, they see him and they see the father. What a blessing to receive such power. If you've seen Christ's servants who've been washed by his blood, you have seen Jesus. If you see the church loving one another, you have seen Jesus. In Christ, you become the instruments of revealing God to the world, repeating his words that he received from the Father, imitating the love that he was sent by the Father to share. In Christ, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to us to put on display by serving one another. That is quite the blessing. So what do we do with these huge ideas? of being washed and sent to serve in the name of God. What does it look like for you? As I said before, there's thousands of ways, so I'm not going to start exploring every one of them. But let me just wrap up with three questions for you to consider and think about how am I called to serve? First, whom are we to serve? Then, what should our service look like? And finally, how is this service possible? So first, whom are we to serve? Far too often, this story of Jesus washing the feet of the disciples is used to guilt people into becoming servants of whatever headline grabs the attention of our society the most or whatever the government says is the most current thing needing funding. Well, you should really serve like Jesus washed feet. We should start programs for poor people and single mothers and immigrants and kids needing education and wars in Israel and Ukraine and all these other things. These are important things we should talk about. But they're not the ones Jesus is primarily calling us to serve. Whom does Jesus tell us we ought to serve in verse 14? One another. This love is best put on display to the world. God's sacrificial work to save us is best proclaimed to the world. The needs of society are best cared for by Christians loving one another in close proximity. Jesus will say this again in verse 35, focusing our efforts not on the world out there, not on Christians in general in other places. He says, first on the Christians in your life, By this, people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is a major theme of John's own later letters. He says, we know we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers and sisters. By this, we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to do so for the brothers and sisters. Paul tells the Galatians the same thing. So then, as we have opportunity, sure, let us do good to everyone, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. You can't wash someone's feet on the other side of the planet, but you can regularly wash each other's feet. And then just as God's eternal triune love that was first inward pointed at himself, it overflowed, shot past him into a creation to experience his love, so the church ought to love one another so intensely that we often just spill over into our neighbors, into our families, into our communities, here and then to the ends of the earth. So who are the people among us here in this church, those closest to us, in our families that God has already put in our lives that are low, that need you to get low with them, to help lift them up? Secondly, what should this service look like? Again, just like it's not a general call to serve all people everywhere, it's not a general call to simply do nice things. Jesus' example was taking on the identity of a menial servant, doing a task no one else wanted to do, or a task that culturally was looked down upon, or a position that was easily ignored or forgotten. So as you strive to find your way to serve, think about doing things that no one else is doing, or no one else wants to do, or something that you could do and nobody will even notice. But even more so, we don't want to be remembered because we want them to remember Jesus instead. This is really the heart of the service Jesus is calling us to. Remember in verse 20, the goal is to reveal Jesus who reveals the Father. Jesus washed their feet to speak about their need to be washed to go into the presence of God, to be washed from their sin. So the best way to determine if your service is what Jesus has in mind is to ask whether it gives you or someone else in partnership with you an opportunity to speak of Jesus in his gospel. The servants who showed up here early to clean. The worship team who so- showed up early to practice. They're preparing the way for you to receive the word. Or my wife keeps an amazing home and makes delicious food so that when I invite you in, you can be blessed by her while I tell you more about Jesus. Some people emptied their savings account to help purchase this building so you would have a place you know you can show up to every Sunday. Every Sunday and you can invite your neighbors to so they can hear the gospel preached. There's infinite ways for you to be a foot washer. How can you help serve in a way that leads people to hear about Jesus? Finally, remember how this service is possible. In our natural state, it is impossible to give ourselves, to stay humble, to empty yourself, to serve in a way that makes you forgotten. We are hungry for glory. So who, in their natural state, can serve in such a way? Jesus did. And by doing so, he made it possible for you to do it as well. You can do it in Christ because he washed you by his blood. You can do it in Christ because he gives you security in his promises. You don't care what other people think because you care what God thinks and the love he has poured out on you. You don't have to worry about losing your identity. You're happy to lose it because your identity now is in the life giving wisdom of Christ. You can do it because He promises when you do, the eternal, loving, triune God stands with you in His resurrection power. So go and serve one another with sacrificial love of Christ so the world will know that you are His blood washed, love inspired disciples. Let's pray. Thank you, God for these in this room who are washed and have become servants of Christ. May you wash many more in this room who at this point are still like Judas, just going through the motions. May they now be washed clean and join us in self-sacrificial service that the world may see us and see Jesus and be called into his family by his blood. Amen.